Chapter Sixteen of *The Girl at Central* by Geraldine Bonner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen. It was a long ride to Cresset's Crossing. First on the main line to the junction, and then just time to make a close connection with the branch line to the crossing. It was three when we reached there and started out to walk to Cresset's farm. There'd been rain the day before, and the road was muddy, with water standing here and there in the ruts. The weather was still overcast, the sky covered with clouds, heavy and laden colored. It was cold, a raw, piercing air, and we walked fast. I, careful of my new dress, picking my steps on the edge of the road and Babbitts tramping along in the mud beside me. I'd never been up there at that season, and I thought it was a gloomy, lonesome spot. The land rolled away with fences creeping along it like gray snakes. Here and there were clumps of woods, purplish against the sky, and between them the brown stretches of plowed land, that in the springtime there would be green with the grain, and now under those dark, low-hanging clouds, with the naked trees and the bare empty fields it looked forlorn and dreary it was as still as a pitcher not a thing moving but one man some ways off walking along the top of the hill you could see him like a silhouette going slow and a bundle on a stick over his shoulder and a bit of red around his neck when we got to the highest point he stopped and looked down on the road he couldn't see us. The trees interfered, and he seemed, as Babbitt said, like the spirit of the landscape, sort of desolate and lonely, plodding along there, solitary and slow, between the earth and the sky. Then presently, even he was gone, disappearing over the brow of the hill. When we passed the river rock road, I could see the fire one, making a curving line through the country below. I had a creepy feeling, thinking what had happened there eight weeks ago. Where's the place? I said almost in a whisper, and Babbitts pointed ahead with his cane. A little further on, where the brushes grow thick there, right along from the station. Clumps and bunches of small trees had edged the way like a hedge. After we passed the river rock road, they grew thicker, making a sort of shrubbery, higher than our heads. I remembered that just before the murder, men had been cutting these for brushwood, and even now we passed piles of branches, dead and dry, with the leaves clinging to them like brown rags, where the firehill road ran into the turnpike. The growth was tangled and close, almost a small wood. It wasn't far beyond that Babbitts pointed out of the place. There was an edge of shriveled grass, and on this she had been found with the branches piled over her. He drew with his cane where she had lain between the trees and the road. You can see just how the murderer worked, he said. He attacked Miss Hesketh here, burst out of the darkness on her, and killed her with one blow. 
you remember there was no sign either about her or her surroundings of a struggle and almost immediately heard the doctor's auto horn we can place that by the scream the bohemian woman heard do you think he was here when the doctor passed i asked of course he was he hadn't had time to arrange the body that was done after the doctor had gone by done after the moon came out freddy said it was as bright as day when he got there by that brightness the murderer did the work of concealment i stepped back into the mud and looked down to where firehill road entered the turnpike a few yards farther on he must have heard mr reddy's horn before the car came in sight by that time he had probably finished and stolen away i don't think so said babbitts he couldn't have done it without some noise and reddy who was listening and watching for sylvia was positive there wasn't a sound that human devil was back among the bushes when reddy's car came round the turn and he must have stayed there afraid to move watching reddy first as he waited then as he slowly ran back and forth god what a situation one man looking for the woman he loved her murderer hidden a few yards from him and between them both her dead body i seemed to see it the road bathed in moonlight the murderer huddled down in the black shadow and ready in the car looking now this way and now that expecting her to come how terribly still it must have been not a sound except the rustling of the withered leaves i could imagine the light from the racers lamps shooting out in two long yellow rays showing every rut and ridge so that that grim watching face had to draw down lower still in the darkness of the underbush did he know who reddy was waiting for what did he feel when the auto moved in one swerve sideways would have sent those yellow rays over the heap of branches on the grass as babbitt said he must have been afraid to move must have cowered there and seen the racer glide away and then come back and still bent behind the network of twigs have watched the man at the wheel and he looked up and down the road waited and listened every now and then sounding the horn that broke the silence like a weird hollow cry oh come on i said suddenly seizing babbitt's arm let's go up to cresset's where it's bright and cheerful we had a lovely time at cresset's my but they were such a nice family farmer cresset a big kind jolly man and his two sons splendid sunburnt chaps and his little daughter as fresh as a peach and as shy as a kitten i love them all and mrs cresset best she made me think of my mother not that she looked like her but i guess because she had something about her that's about all women who've had families they've loved they gave us tea and cake and they joked babbitts good and hard about coming out there and pretending to be a tourist 
never mind son farmer cresset said you got it out of the old woman i couldn't make her tell seemed like she thought she'd been arrested for the crime if she'd up and confessed about the feller it was getting on for evening when we left to go to the wayside arbor we'd planned to have our supper there and then go back by the branch line catching a train at the crossing at eight thirty the crescents were really sorry to have us go especially there it ain't a nice place said mrs cresset as she kissed me good-bye but we're hoping to see it cleared out soon tom stern heaven and earth to get hands lessons revoked i guess heaven's lending a hand said the farmer for i hear hans business is a bad since the fatality we got a lot of foreign labor round here and they're mighty superstitious and are giving this place the go-by it was dark when we saw the lights of the wayside arbor shining out across the road we'd expected a moon to light us home but the clouds though they weren't as thick as they had been were all broken up into little bits over the sky like heaven was paved with them the arbor was quiet as we stepped up and opened the bar door and there just like on the night of the murder was heinz sitting by the stove reading a newspaper he jumped up quick and greeted us very cordially and you could see he was glad to get a newcomer he sure was a tough-looking specimen with gray stubble all over his chin and a dirty sweater hanging open over a dirtier shirt that had no collar and was fastened with a fake gold button that left a black mark on his neck if i thought his looks were bad that day in the summer i thought they were worse now for he seemed down and dispirited than he was then we asked him if we could have supper and he went out calling mrs hines and we could hear someone clattering down the stairs and then a whispering going on in the hall when we came back he said they'd get us a cold lunch but they didn't keep a great deal on hand seeing as how they hadn't much call for meals at that season you could see that was true i never was in such a miserable poverty-stricken hole leaving babbitts talking to hines in the bar i went back into the dining-room a long shabby place that crossed the rear of the house it was as dingy as the rest of it with the paper all smudged and peeling off the walls and worn bits of carpet laid over the board floor at the back two long windows looked out on the garden glancing through these i could see the arch of the arbor with the wet shining on the tables and a few withered leaves trembling on the vines when i turned back to the room i got a queer kind of scare a thing i would have laughed at anywhere else but in that house on that night it turned me creepy there was a long old-fashioned mirror on the opposite wall with a crack going straight across the middle of it as i caught my reflection in it 
I raised my head, wanting to get the effect of my new hat, but it brought the crack exactly across my neck. Believe me, I jumped, and then stood staring, for it looked just as if my throat was cut. Then I moved away from it, pulling up my collar, ashamed of myself, but all the same keeping out of the range of the mirror. In the bar I could hear the voices of Babbitts and Hines, Hines droning on like a person who is complaining. From behind a door at the far end of the room came a noise of crockery and pans, and then a woman's voice, peevish and scolding, and another woman's answering back. I don't think I ever was in a place that got on my nerves so, and what with the cold of the room. It was like a barn with no steam and the stove not lit. I sat all hunched up in my coat, thinking of Sylvia Hesketh, coming there for shelter. Suddenly the door of the room opened, and Mrs. Hines came in. She was the match of it all, with her red nose, and her little watery eyes, and her shoes dropped off at every step, so you could hear the heels rapping on the boards where the carpet stopped. She began talking in a whiny voice, and as she set the table, told me how the business had gone off, and they didn't know what they were going to do. Her hands, all chapped and full of knots like twigs, smoothed out the cloth and put on the china so listless it made you tired to look at them. It was better talking to her than sitting dumb with no company but dismal thoughts, so I encouraged her and between her trailings into the kitchen and her trailings out, I heard all about their affairs. For a while after the murder, they'd done a lot of business. It made me sort of shrivel up to see she didn't mind that. Anything that brought trade was all the same to her, but now nothing was doing only a few automobiles stopped there and the farmhands had dropped off so their custom hardly counted and teclo rabine the bohemian servant who was a first-class girl if she didn't have grouchy spells had got so slack she had to be fired and she mrs hines didn't see how she was to get another one with what the low wages and lonesomeness she trailed off into the kitchen again, and I could hear her snapping at someone, and that other woman's voice growling back. I supposed it was Tecla Rabin, though it didn't sound like her. My memory of her at the inquest, being of a fat, good-natured thing that wouldn't have growled at anybody. And then the door was opened with one swift kick, and Tecla came out, carrying a plate of bread in one hand and a platter with ham on it in the other. She didn't look grouchy at all, but gave me that broad, silly sort of smile I remembered, and put the things down on the table. Well, Tecla, I asked for something to say. How are you getting on? Ach, she answered, disgusted, and pounded over the creaky floor to a cupboard, out of which she took some dishes. Me? I get out. Or what do I stay? No luck here, no money. Who comes? Nobody. Everything goes on the blink, 
she put the things on the table and then stood looking at me squinting up her eyes with her big body and dirty white blouse and a skirt that didn't meet at the waist slouched up against the table i heard business was bad i said and i thought that in spite of her being such a coarse fat animal she was rosy and healthy looking which is more than you could say for the other two what do i get she said spreading out her great red hands not a thing maybe five ten cents every long time maybe a quarter since that lady gets killed all goes bad the dagos say you will lie they walk around the house that way she made a half circle in the air with her arm looking at it afraid me too i don't like it i'm sure it's awful dismal i agreed no good she said last year this time the room full tonight one man she held up a finger in the air one only man and he have lost what makes us to laugh when i see him i says hintito good luck now you come make the bear to dance and he says it this way she unshut her shoulders and pushed out her hands the way the guineas do oh gada there's no more bear he makes dead long time bear i said and then i remembered you mean the one that went round the acrobats it's dead is it tecla nodded gone dead in the country and he says he starves now with no bear to get pennies the boss says we all starve and i gave him a drink and cheese and bread ach she shook her head as if the loss of the bear was the last straw i no can stand it nothing doing no money no more laughs i quit i didn't blame her if you had given me two hundred a month i wouldn't have stayed there just then babbitts came in and we began our supper cold ham and stale bread and coffee that i know was the morning's heated over tecla went into the kitchen and i said to him low and guarded what's heinz been saying to you he answered in the same key oh putting up a hard luck story crescent needn't bother he wants to pull up stakes and go west will they let him that's one of the things he's been talking about he says if he makes a move it'll look suspicious and he says he'll be ruined he certainly is up against it i shot a glance from the kitchen to the bar door and leaned across the table almost whispering i don't see that our investigations have got us anything but a bad supper either do i he whispered back this place looks like a stage setting for the bandits den but the people don't impress me that way at all the kitchen door swung back and mrs hines came in with a pumpkin pie that tasted like it was baked for thanksgiving she hovered round fussing about us and joining in the conversation you could see she was hungry for somebody to talk to both she and her husband impressed me that way as if they were most crazy with the dreariness of the place and were ready to fasten on anyone who'd speak civil to them and listen to their troubles before we left babbitts went into the bar to settle up and i remembered tecla's complaints called her in from the kitchen and fished a quarter out of my new purse she was as pleased as a child grinning over it 
and wanted to shake hands with me, which I hated but couldn't avoid. When we were once more on the road, I gave a gasp of relief as I felt I'd creeped out from under a shadow that was gradually sinking into me, down into the marrow of my bones. The night was cold, but a different kind, fresh and clear, the smell of damp fields in the air, and the country quiet and peaceful. We had a good two miles before us, stepped out lively. It was dark. The clouds molted over the sky, and in one place where the moon was hidden, a little brightness showed through the cracks. Babbitt said he thought they'd break, and that we'd have the moonlight on our way back. All around us the landscape stretched back and still. When you got accustomed to it, you could see the outlines of the hills against the sky, one darkness set against another, and on the light of the road showing faint between the edgings of the bushes. We couldn't hear anything but our own footsteps, soft and padding, because of the mud, and off on the rusting of the twigs as I brushed against them. I don't remember ever being out on a quieter night, and there was something lovely and soothing about it after that horrible house. We hadn't gone far, about ten minutes, I should think, when suddenly I clasped my wrist and felt that my purse was gone. I had taken it off to give Tecla the quarter, and I remembered that I laid it on the supper table when she made me shake hands. Oh dear, I said, stopping short. What shall I do? I've left my purse there. Babbitt stared at me through the dark. At Hines? Yes, on the supper table, and it's new. I only just bought it. Oh, I can't lose it. You needn't. We've got time, but you'll have to hit up the pace. Come on, quick. That's not just the place I'd select to leave a person. He turned to go, but I stood still. I hated going back there, and it was lovely walking slowly through the sharp, chill air and that peaceful night. You go, I said, coaxing. I'll saunter on, and you can catch up with me. Don't mind being alone? Aren't you afraid? Afraid? <laughs> I gave a laugh. I'm much more afraid than that queer joint. Besides, I can't go as fast as you can, and whatever happens, we've got to catch that train. If you don't mind, that's the best plan. I'll run both ways. Then hustle, and I'll walk on slowly. But come whether you find the purse or not, for that's the last train to the junction tonight, and we mustn't lose it. Right you are. And we won't lose anything, the train or the purse. I'll make it a rush order. Go slow till I come. He turned and went off at a run, and I walked. At first I could hear the thud of his feet quietly, quite plainly, and then the sound was suddenly deadened, and I knew he was on the moist turf by the roadside. The silence closed down round me like a black curtain that seemed to be shutting me off from the rest of the world. I walked on slowly, gathering my skirts from the wet and the twigs, as noiseless as a shadow in the dark of the trees. I don't know how much farther I went, not very far, because I could just make out the line of Firehill Road curving down between the fields, when I heard behind me a fitful, stealthy rustling in the bushes. End of chapter 16